Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Gregory Reddick. He's Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Leeds. And today we're talking about his latest book, Disputed Inheritance, The Battle Over Mendel and the Future of Biology. So Dr. Reddick, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Right. So, okay. So this is, your book is basically about the work of William Bateson and Walter Weldon, but uh, basically it's about how they interpreted the work of Mendel and how they basically added to it and, and what followed from that. So let, let's perhaps start with Mendel then, just to give a little bit of theoretical background here, let's say. So could you tell us about his work a little bit? What, what was he studying exactly? Uh, well, you know, everyone knows Mendel as the monk in the garden, uh, the garden being at his monastery in what is today Brno, which is the second city in the Czech Republic, uh, yeah. but was then Brun, uh, part of the, the Austrian Empire. And in his scientific work, Mendel was, was pretty broad, studying everything from, from beekeeping to meteorology. Uh, but for purposes of my book, the, the study that matters was his study of plant hybrids. And the, the paper for which he's esteemed, uh, the paper that gets him into all of our biology textbooks, uh, was based on lectures that he gave in 1865. Uh, and then he published the paper the next year, 1866. And the title was Experiments on Plant Hybrids. And it reports uh, work that he'd done over the previous decade. And as he explains in the paper, from his point of view, there were two big classes of hybrid plants. They were commercially important and they were scientifically interesting. One class is what he calls the constant hybrids. So in this case, you've got plant A and plant B, and you cross them together and you get plant C with this interesting new character. And so you let that plant self-fertilize. And you know if you're a breeder, you cross your fingers and you hope that you continue to get that interesting new character. And, and sometimes that's, that works out. The character remains constant down the generations. And Mendel says, that's not what my paper's about. My paper is about this other class of hybrids, where you cross A with B, you get C with an interesting character, you let the plant self-fertilize, and it doesn't work out. The old parental characters come back again. Mendel calls those the variable hybrids, right? the ones that aren't constant. He says, that's what my paper is about. His question is, is there a law which governs the fate of the hybrid character in these variable hybrid plants? And if there is a law, can he work out what it is? And even beyond that, can he explain it? So historically considered, that's what his brilliant 1866 paper is all about. And to uh, Mendel's satisfaction, you know, he cracked that problem. Uh, and in what ways does the work of Mendel relate to Darwin? I mean, are there any specific ways it does so or not really? Well, uh, we're, we're used to thinking about them together when it comes to yeah. the 
in the science of inheritance mm -hmm. in the the 19th century and the standard way of putting them together is to suggest that in the middle of the 19th century Gregor Mendel got it right when it comes to establishing the foundations of a new science of heredity and Darwin blew it uh, and he blew it in the most embarrassing way with his uh, hypothesis of pangenesis which Darwin actually in that same year, 1865, the same year that Mendel gives his lectures, uh, Darwin first writes up uh, in a manuscript his ideas as, of pangenesis, and he publishes them in 1868 in his book, The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication. Uh, and what I try to suggest in the first chapter of my book is that this isn't a helpful way of thinking about either of these two. Uh, as I emphasized a moment ago, Mendel didn't see himself as establishing the foundations for a science of heredity. He saw himself as solving uh, an important problem to do with one class of plant hybrids. So if you like, uh, if you think about inheritance as, as, a, as a class of problems, Mendel's problem is much narrower than that. It's, mm -hmm. it's a kind of subpart of, of that, uh, that larger grouping. By contrast, Charles Darwin saw inheritance as just one of nine classes of facts mm -hmm. that he saw his pangenesis hypothesis as addressing. Everything from reproduction, sexual and asexual, through to the healing of wounds. Darwin wanted a, a theory that could explain in a unified way pretty much everything to do with the generation of new living tissue at every scale. So with, with Mendel, we have someone working on a really focused problem, some ways down from inheritance. And with Darwin, someone working on something much grander than that, in which inheritance has its place, but as only one of a whole slew of different kinds of facts that, that he saw himself as explaining. Maybe the final thing to say on, on this topic is that uh, we know that Mendel read Darwin because his copy of the origin of species remains in the Abbey with Mendel's annotations, as does his copy of, of the, the German translation uh, of the origin, but also of, of the variation. Uh, there's been a, a lot of counterfactual longing for Darwin reading Mendel on the view that if only Darwin had read Mendel's paper, then he would have seen how inheritance really works. He could have knitted Mendel's better theory of inheritance into his theory of natural selection and saved evolutionary biology about 60, 70 years um, of debate. Because in the 20th century, one of the great achievements was the uh, synthesis of Darwinian natural selection with Mendelian genetics uh, called the modern synthesis. Uh, but but we, we know that, that Mendel, uh, we, paper, Mendel's paper never made its way uh, to Charles Darwin. But as I say, definitely uh, Mendel read Darwin. And in fact, there are signs in the paper, in the 1866 paper, of, of Mendel's engaging with, with Darwin. And so at a certain point there, you said that Mendel didn't think of himself as someone who was addressing at least directly uh, questions surrounding heredity. He wasn't tackling heredity directly, at least. But one person apart from Darwin and Mendel that was very much trying to illuminate heredity was Francis Galton, right?
So absolutely. Uh, and, and so tell us a little bit about him and what what is basically the role that you see he has played in this history, the history you explore in your book. Yeah, Galton is a is a major figure uh, in the the history of of heredity, and and so accordingly in my book, uh, he was a half cousin of Charles Darwin's, younger than Darwin, and worshipped uh, his his older relative, uh, and and really the publication of the Origin of Species kind of blew Galton's mind, uh, and his his own way of making uh, a path towards the the horizons that Darwin had opened up was through uh, the launching of, of a new, a set of new ways of studying heredity. Again, from that magic year of 1865, um, he publishes a paper, uh, a two-part magazine article on hereditary talents and character, in which he aims to convince the reader that eminence, so becoming important enough socially to get your obituary in the times, uh, that kind of eminence, uh, is something that you're much more likely to attain if you are descended from uh, a relative who himself, and these are all males, uh, had, had attained that kind of, of eminence. And he's, he's not a dummy, is Galton, and, and, and in, in no way is he a dummy. And so he recognizes that some people might think, well, surely if you're the child of an eminent person, then you, you just inherit all of these opportunities. It's not just that you inherit the innate qualities of, of genius. And he, he acknowledges that, but, but he thinks on the one hand that let's say if you're, you're, your dad's a famous novelist, uh, that yeah, sure, your first novel will get more attention than somebody who's a nobody. Um, but if it's no good, you won't go on to have a career as a novelist. Whereas uh, someone who grows up poor with no connections, if they've got it in them, to write a great novel, and, and for Galton, hereditary genius is partly to do with the energy, the kind of drive to achieve, then, then, then nothing's going to stop them. So he, he's, he begins uh, his launching into this new science of heredity, having come out of geography um, and meteorology with this sort of gift, this flair for the quantitative that characterizes all of his work, uh, at, with the study of pedigrees. Uh, that, so he introduces the study of pedigrees methodologically into the, the study of inheritance. And he goes on from there over the decades that follow from the 1860s into the 1890s and beyond to be very creative uh, methodologically. So introducing the study of pedigrees, introducing statistics into the study of inheritance on the view that if you really want to capture hereditary patterns, You've, you've got to use this new mathematical language uh, e emerging out of astronomy and, and other sciences. And, and, and using this, uh, Galton was able to show that over and over again with human traits, whether it's chest sizes or the results of exams that students take at the military academy, the, the bell curve shows up over and over and over again. This is what comes to be called the normal distribution. So pedigree study, statistics, the study of twins, in order to tease out what Galton is pretty much the first person to call nature and nurture. Um, that's something that he, he again invents. So an enormously creative person who also puts heredity, including in English that term, which was pretty unusual from the 1860s, uh, on the map for people interested in the sciences and, and people more broadly.
Uh, and so uh, just before we move on in this history, um, still about Francis Galton, because I guess this is a very important point to also uh, touch on here. What about his political agenda? Because I guess that in this particular case, and as we know historically, uh, at least some of his work contributed to what was later the eugenics movement, right? So uh, was he himself a eugenicist? Uh, and I mean, I, I guess that in this case, we can say that he was not just purely intellectually interested in the science itself, but perhaps he also had a, some sort of political agenda, correct? That, that's absolutely right, and, it, and it's really important. And, and I should say that in the book, it's a, it's a theme that I, I pay a lot of attention to, both in, in Galton's case, but, but throughout the story that I'm telling. Yeah. And yes, in that, in that 1865 article, Galton is absolutely clear that the reason this is important is because our leaders are just not good enough. Society is becoming incredibly complex. We need to have leaders who are up to the job. Uh, and, and our leaders, if we compare them with the likes of Pericles in ancient Greece, are just not the, 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 at the quality that we need. So in establishing the hereditary nature of greatness, mm -hmm. Galton sees himself as offering his society a new solution to their problems. If we want better leaders, we need to breed them into being by ensuring that the best people marry each other and have as many children as possible. And that's always what excited Galton, the idea of, of improvement, the idea that we could be doing so much more. Uh, as he said, he puts it rather pungently. He says, imagine if we gave even a fraction of the attention to our own breeding that we give to the breeding of our cattle and our dogs. Imagine what a galaxy of genius we could create. He, he also wrote about the desirability of preventing people at the bottom of the social scale, people of low intelligence, morally feckless, from marrying and having lots of children. Uh, but his Emphasis was always on, on, on the positive, on, on where we could go if only the best bred with the best. Uh, and his 1865 article actually concludes with, with him imagining uh, an academy in the future where the, the best and the brightest will be picked out by exams and then there'll be a ceremony in which they, they marry each other, a kind of utopia. Um, he gives the, the name of eugenics to this proposal in 1883. Uh, so was he a eugenicist? He was the first. And, and, and he also insisted that the reason the science of inheritance matters is because socially we need to understand better how to organize our own inherited qualities so as to, so as to improve them. Uh, but that said, uh, he was a complex figure. And one of the complexities that I, I try to bring out in the book is that along with this uh, insistence that we need to breed our way to a better future was an insistence that inheritance is not simply a matter of, of what's innate because what's transmitted from parent to child has to develop and it has to develop in a context. 
And that context will matter. And so Galton says, we shouldn't be surprised when two eminent parents end up having a dummy child or two apparently dummy parents end up having a brilliant child. For Galton, heredity was immensely complex. And um, I've actually brought a prop in. I write about this um, in the book. This is one of Galton's inventions. <clears throat> it's called the quincunx. And it's used around the world in science classrooms and in science museums to demonstrate how the normal curve comes about through the, uh, the, the, the through lots of random events mm -hmm. taking place uh, at once. And, and we'll see this as uh, the uh, pellets fall through, through the, uh, the device, through the pegs. But Galton actually introduced this in a lecture on nature and nurture. Mm -hmm. And what I suggest in the book is that for Galton, uh, the way to understand this device as representing inheritance is to see each pellet as a character which is bound for averageness at the beginning of its developmental journey. And, and all of the pegs represent the multitude of events which this character will encounter en route to becoming a mature character. And what it means is that most of them will end up average, but mm -hmm. you'll also get plenty which end up deviating one side or the other. Uh, and, and it's rather magical to watch. And so I thought your, your viewers might appreciate it. Here we go. So that's the quincunx. And in my view, it's a context matters machine. That's the point of it when it comes to inheritance. And, and it's a job of work to bring that side of Galton's understanding of inheritance into the, the, the eugenical side. But, but that's what I try to do in the book. Mm -hmm. And so just before we get into Bateson and Weldon, just one more quick question about uh, Mendel. So uh, until the basically the 1900s, did people pay lots of attention to Mendel's work or not so much? And if not, uh, why? Why was it that perhaps Mendel's work went a little bit under the radar? Uh, it's a great question and an important one because uh, our, our inherited view of this, the received wisdom, is that Mendel showed how heredity works in 1865, published it in 1866, but the people around him weren't ready. And so he was neglected. He went on to become at the abbot, at the abbey, his scientific work quietened down. He died and he was esteemed locally, uh, but by no means famous. And then only after his death in the year 1900, three independent investigators converged on his, uh, his ratios uh, and, and his explanation of them. Uh, and then within the next 10 years, Mendel becomes part of the pantheon, right? So the story is he was ahead of his time and only when the times caught up with Mendel was, he, was his work appreciated. Uh, but the historian's view, and this isn't by any means original to me, is that Mendel, as, as we discussed, saw himself as making a contribution on hybridism 
and his work was noted uh, among fellow hybridists as a contribution on plant hybrids. And indeed, the, the work was cited respectfully uh, throughout the, the 19th century by fellow specialists. Now, what happened over those decades, not least because of debates that Charles Darwin with The Origin of Species stimulates, is that inheritance as a scientific object of investigation moves up the agenda. And as it moves up the agenda, the method of crossbreeding comes to be seen as a really useful way of getting at uh, these questions. So as I put it in the book, for, for Mendel, hybrids are an end unto themselves. He wants to understand hybrids. Over the next decades, hybridization comes to be a means to understanding a different end, inheritance and relatedly evolution. So it's with that change that suddenly in 1900, people are able to put on new spectacles in reading Mendel's paper to see in it what he himself didn't see in it uh, and to draw out of it, uh, not least thanks to William Bateson as we'll come to, the new science of Mendelism. And so how do William Bateson and Walter Weldon get into the picture here? And how, I mean, we'll go step by step here because Bateson and Weldon are the central focus of your book. But how did they first perhaps get in touch with Mendel's work? Well, they, they both uh, got in touch with Mendel's work in that, in that year of 1900. Mm -hmm. uh, but but what led them to take the interest uh, are, are two related but different paths. Both of them were students together uh, in zoology at Cambridge University in the early 1880s at a moment when the excitement in that science was all about using the comparative study of embryos in order to reconstruct the Darwinian tree of life. And for Weldon, who was a year older uh, than Bateson and, and had much more of a chance to study with uh, the great figure in Darwinian comparative embryology at Cambridge at that time, a man called Francis Balfour, who died tragically young. Uh, Weldon absorbs this, this research agenda uh, uh, but but he does it in, a, in an unusually thoughtful way because he becomes interested from the start, not just in the products of Darwinian evolution, this branching tree of life, but but in the process itself, in natural selection, and in 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 how to study it, and and in taking over these preoccupations from from Balfour, he takes over this interest in the way that. Darwinian natural selection brings together inheritance and variation and environment. Balfour gives a lecture in which he says, evolution is basically the story of heredities and environments. And so Weldon is creatively engaging uh, with all of that. And when he encounters Francis Galton's statistical work in the late 1880s, what he sees in it is a chance to operationalize some of these questions that he'd had about how to study the interaction of heredity and environment in making populations well adapted to, to their circumstances. 
Bateson ends up taking a different kind of a path. Uh, the way I put it in the book is that where Weldon has the ambition to Darwinize form, Bateson ends up wanting to geometrize it, which is interestingly different, even though they both come out of the same staple. And, and partly I think it's to do with, well, with uh, Bateson chafing a little bit at being Bates, at being a Weldon sidekick, you know, of, of being the, the younger, the younger friend. And, and you can see he goes on this extraordinary expedition to uh, uh, the steppes of, uh, you know, central Russia uh, in order to investigate these questions of, of environment and form. And it, and it doesn't work out from him, for him. And so he seems to come away from that with a, a firm rejection of the idea that there's anything interesting to be found there. We need to look to the, the inner causes of form if we want to understand animals and plants. Uh, likewise, he, he kind of imprints on other teachers' work at Cambridge, uh, and particularly one who emphasizes that living things need to be thought of as vortices, vortices in which uh, the physical chemical materials come in and dynamically they achieve a certain stability. Uh, and and um, for, for Bateson, the challenge was to, to grasp a kind of mathematical vision uh, of orderliness in, in living form. Uh, and that pushes him away, not just from the environment, but from the idea of Darwinian natural selection. And so where Weldon in the 1890s is pioneering the statistical study of natural selection operating in the wild, Bateson is rejecting all of that with a book published in 1894, which aims to suggest that the emphasis on continuous variation, on adaptation, all of that is a mistake. That really evolution moves by leaps from one stable form to another stable form. Uh, and from the mid 1890s, he begins doing crossing work, uh, emphasizing non-blending characters uh, mm -hmm. as a way of, of getting at this other vision of evolution as not moving stepwise, but by moving from, from one stable point to another stable point. Uh, and so they, they both end up getting caught in the buzz around Mendel's paper around 1900, but, but having brought to it these different kinds of preoccupations and attitudes, they take from it uh, very different things. And so before we get into the ideas, the precise ideas that they developed about genetics and heredity. Uh, how would you frame the debate between them or how was it framed back then? I mean, when it comes to interpreting Mendel's work and then also their own contributions, uh, what would you say the debate was really about? It, it's, it's a contentious issue and, and as with several others we've talked about, uh, in thinking our way through it, we, we have to grapple with lots of received opinion, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, not least because we know who won this debate, uh, right? We, we, it was the Bateson and, and his Mendelians. Yeah, and, and, so we'll get, ever, and we'll get into that uh, in that's a bit. Right, but, 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 but as ever, you know, it's the winners who write the history. Yeah. Uh, and so our vision of, of what the debate was about has, has come from, from Bateson's side. And he would sometimes 
emphasize this as a debate over, as a proxy debate over Darwinism, mm -hmm. right? And so there, the, the issue is, is, is variation continuous uh, as, as Weldon typically emphasized, or is it discontinuous? Uh, and the, the example to think with here is peas, right? If, if famously uh, Mendel's paper is principally about his work with peas, uh, and the, the peas that he worked with came in, in, in binary kinds, right? So there were varieties which produced yellow seeds and varieties that produced green seeds. And everything follows for Mendel if you accept that you're dealing with yellowness, greenness, or roundness and wrinkledness, or purple flower and white flower. Uh, but Weldon in 1902, so two years after the rediscovery, publishes a critique uh, of Mendel's paper. And this is on the cover of my, my book, I've got the part of the image that, that Weldon publishes. And if you, you just look at the top there, what you see are peas which are not strictly yellow mm -hmm. or green but intermediately be between the two. So um, Weldon's point was that if you don't categorize peas using Mendel's categories, what you'll find is a spectrum going mm. from deepest green to deepest yellow. That said, if you had asked Weldon, so is this what this debate is about? Continuously varying characters versus discontinuous characters? He would have rolled his eyes and said, of course, it's not about that. And he would have pointed you to uh, work that he had done with his wife in the early 1890s, rolling dice. You know, Weldon was a statistical biologist, and his, his mm -hmm. side of the debate is often characterized as biometry. Uh, and what he thought you should learn from dice rolls is that you can get surprising seeming dice rolls, right? You can roll 12 dice and 11 of them. Uh, will come up with fives. And you might think, oh my God, uh, it's it's a, a leap away from the norm. Uh, but if you put that result in the context of the larger distribution of dice rolls, you'll see it as something that can happen as a matter of chance. It's not necessarily anything that upsets your ordinary ideas about how inheritance works. So, so from Weldon's point of view, it wasn't about continuity or discontinuity. Likewise, uh, Bateson often represented the debate as between the experimentalists and the, uh, the, the those working with statistics. Uh, and again, Weldon would have rejected that because experiments were as important to him. They were just different kinds of experiment rather than crossing experiments with purified breeds, which, which he saw as, as having a role, uh, but he didn't see them as centrally illuminating about inheritance precisely because they strip out all of the variability that otherwise obtains. Far more instructive in Weldon's view were experiments like ones he talked about uh, in his own popular lecturing with the water flea Daphnia, where if you, if you raise Daphnia up in water that becomes increasingly polluted, the length of the spine diminishes to the point where it basically disappears. But if you then take a Daphnia and let its descendants grow up in pure water, the spine comes back. And Weldon says what this shows us is that every character is both inherited and acquired because every character matures in a developing organism in an environment 
So whenever we're thinking about inheritance, we're also thinking about development and the environment and variability. Right, so it's not continuity, discontinuity. It's not experiments versus statistics. So what is it? From Weldon's point of view, it was about the conception of dominance. Hmm. So uh, on the Mendelian view, as Bateson promotes it, right, you've got yellow-seeded peas, green-seeded peas, you cross them together, all of the next peas are yellow. What that shows you is that yellowness is dominant to greenness. And when those plants self-fertilize in the next generation, you get three to one yellow to green. Greenness comes back again. It was recessive. It receded in the first hybrid generation and then came back. Mm -hmm. So in elementary Mendelism, the characters are treated as, as absolutely dominant or recessive. Yellowness is dominant across the board, no matter what. Greenness is recessive. And, and you only get greenness on the Mendelian analysis if there are no yellow-making factors in, in the P. Now, on, Mendel, on uh, Weldon's view, that was a mistake, and it was a mistake that went against all of the best of the understanding of biology mm -hmm. at that time, because what the, the best biological work of the previous 20 years had shown in Weldon's view was that every tissue exhibits its properties in a context. And if you change the context, you can change what's exhibited. And so on Weldon's analysis, it was entirely possible for there to be green-seeded peas that nevertheless had yellow-making factor in them. It wasn't the case that yellowness was dominant across the board. Yellowness could be dominant, it could be recessive, uh, the pea could be intermediately in between. It all depended. And, and in Weldon's view, that was the issue. Do we treat dominance as something absolute or do we treat it as relative, relative to a context? And in the book that he was working on, uh, he identified the latter conception, not with, uh, uh, surprisingly enough, with Francis Galton. And that goes back to the point I was making about the quincunx, right? That, that for Galton, development matters, context matters, and you get all of that variability out of that. Uh, and so you've already basically summarized Bateson's and Weldon's views there about inheritance. Could you tell us now what happened after the death, the tragic death of Weldon in 1906? I mean, after that, how did the disciplines of genetics uh, develop? Um, well, so Weldon publishes that critique with that image in 1902. And from 1902 to 1906, the feud between Bateson and Weldon and a growing number of people is increasingly bitter. But mm -hmm. it, it pushes them both to be scientifically creative. Uh, and on, on Bateson's side, as I try to draw out in the book, he brilliantly makes Mendelism into this remarkably creative an ever-extendable research program. And he does that in part by making it invulnerable to the kind of empirical disproof that, that Weldon initially emphasized, right? So you find peas that are intermediately greeny, yellowy, big deal on Bateson's view. We'll just put that in mm -hmm. the category of work to be examined in the future. Of course you expect complexity. Uh, in all sorts of ways, uh, Bateson 
enabled Mendelism to roll with anything that was found empirically. And any successful research program needs to do that. Uh, so in part, he was pushed to do that precisely by, by Weldon's critique. Weldon, for his part, was forced to think much harder, not just about what doesn't happen, but what does happen. Uh, and so between 1904 and 1906, he was working on a book which set out his alternative vision for the science of heredity, a vision in which Mendel's patterns take their place, not as the grand generalization around which to hang everything else, but as a special case. They are what you get when all of that variability internally and externally gets stripped out to the point where you get one difference uh, between the two systems. At that point, you get those pretty mathematizable patterns. But otherwise, we expect the kind of variability for which you need statistics to, to explain it. Mm -hmm. So Weldon dies, as you said, in 1906, in the spring of 1906, at the age of 46, uh, unexpectedly, uh, about of pneumonia. Some said brought on by stress from this debate. Mm -hmm. uh, and with the, the, the book unfinished and unpublished. And, and at that point, as I see it, the, the most effective criticism that anybody had ever formulated of the emerging Mendelian perspective vanishes uh, from the place where it could have made a difference. It doesn't vanish from the intellectual scene. Weldon's emphases on context remain permanently available. And part of the um, ambition of the book is to explain how a successful science is able to absorb criticisms by relegating them to the periphery. And that's what happens after 1906. Uh, the Bateson and his ever-growing band of, of Mendelians, uh, initially at Cambridge and then internationally, especially gets taken up in the United States, develop a world-conquering science, which is why in our textbooks, uh, Mendel and his peas feature, as they've done for, for over a century, right? When it's time to get serious about animals and plants and their inheritance around the world, we start with Mendel. The organization of our knowledge of heredity remains firmly around Mendel and his peas. And, and that's a legacy, as I see it, of this debate. I don't, I don't see it as a foregone conclusion. I don't think it was inevitable. Uh, I, I think it was a, a result of... Weldon dying before he had a chance to publish this book. Uh, and, and I try to make that case in the book. Mm -hmm. And of course, we can never be sure about this. But in your mind, do you think that had events played out differently in 1906, Weldon's alternative to Bateson's Mendelism could have been at least as successful or not? I, I, I do, uh, and, and I develop that thought in the book in the light of, of an analysis of what makes for success on the scale that Mendelism enjoyed. Uh, and and I, I examine a number of, of candidate answers that, that we might find appealing, answers more or less to do with, with how inevitable the gene idea was in the early 20th century. And I, I give reasons for thinking that, that it wasn't. Likewise, I give reasons for suggesting that really this debate didn't matter uh, because we all know 
uh, the, subsequently that it was entirely possible to synthesize the Darwinian perspective that uh, Weldon represented and the Mendelian perspective that Bateson represented. So really it was just that these two guys didn't get along. They were ideologically committed to, to different preoccupations and, and really there was nothing at substance at issue. And I think when we get closer to Weldon's work, what we see is that there was something substantial at issue. And it was the question of what we make central to the way that we organize our knowledge of heredity. Do we make central Mendelian phenomena, Mendelian patterns and explanations? Or do we relegate those to the periphery, making central instead uh, examples like the Daphnia example I gave you, in which you just can't miss that an inherited character is the way it is because it develops in an environment. And with development in environment comes variability. Weldon appreciated that that choice was consequential and it would make a difference to how a science developed, but also uh, its, social, its social consequences. Uh, and so the analysis that I come up with is that uh, success on Mendelism scale is down to a combination of the development of teachable principles, tractable problems, and technological promise. And I, I try to show just how brilliant Bateson was in making Mendel's paper into the teachable set of examples and principles and ratios uh, that we're all familiar with from our genetics textbooks to the point where it's now disorienting for people who know genetics from the textbooks to go back and read Mendel's paper for themselves. There's quite a gap between what goes on in that paper and the Mendel we know from our textbooks. Uh, and, and that's down, as I say, to, to Bateson's um, really tremendous effort in extracting from the paper the, the Mendel that we know. So he, he makes the paper teachable uh, and he, he does it in a way which also enables the student to move stepwise from a simple beginning to a slightly harder next level to a slightly harder next level. Uh, and in the Mendelian pedagogy we have now, uh, a student comes out at the end of it cognitively and emotionally invested in this set of tools. It doesn't occur to you to criticize them. They just become how you understand inheritance. Um, and at the start, Bateson was emphatic that not only had Mendel changed everything for the science of heredity, for the science of evolution uh, with his brilliant paper, but there were also going to be important social consequences. Agriculture was gonna be put on a rational footing. Society was gonna be put on a rational footing. Um, we talked about Galton's eugenics. Mm -hmm. That really began to take off as an idea in the early 20th century, not least as I emphasize in the book, uh, in the context in Britain of the Boer War, which went badly for Britain. And they won, but they won by playing dirty and, and uh, the, it, the whole process exposed to them the possibility that they were degenerating biologically. Mm -hmm. they, they could no longer win against a bunch of South African farmers. And so in the summer of 1904, a series of government reports inquiring into this possibility of, of the nation degenerating were published, emphasizing that 
it's not that serious a problem provided we begin improving education, improving sanitation. Yeah. And Bateson uses this, as I see it, as a foil for presenting the social importance of Mendelism. He, he, he and, and his, his students at Cambridge in their writings emphasize that all of this talk of education, sanitation, that all belongs to the pre-Mendelian past. If we want to get serious about improving society, we have to understand it's all about gametes. That the, that the child, the man, is not made but born. So it's time to, time to acknowledge that. Uh, uh, so the, the hereditarian message is one that Bateson thumps over and over and over again. That's the meaning of Mendelism for Bateson. Uh, and we may talk a little bit about how that, how that gets taken up. So in developing my, my counterfactual thought, what if mm -hmm. uh, Weldon had lived long enough to, to publish, to finish and publish that book? I acknowledge, of course, that there are a lot of other circumstances that have to go in the right way, right? He, he's got to finish it. Uh, uh, he, he, uh, but as I try to show in his Oxford context, he did have people around him, uh, younger people who were excited about his ideas. And in fact, you can see these, these ideas live on in, in their work. So there was the potential, not just for the work to come out, but for it to be the, the band of younger people who make it their mission to build the program, to face down the difficulties and extend in the way that that, that Bateson enjoyed. Uh, and so I, I go through my, my different criteria. Could the Weldonian science of inheritance that never was have become teachable? Um, yes, it could have. And indeed, I, I show that in ways we might talk about. Uh, could it have become the basis for a tractable problem-based series of uh, of uh, researches, absolutely, and we know this because the uh, uh, the Daphne experiment that I that I described to you that Weldon shared with his audience something very like it becomes the basis of a 1909 paper by a man called Richard Volterek, in which in describing how different Daphne variants respond to being in solutions of different nutrient quality, he introduces the concept of what he calls the norm of reaction. So you need to picture uh, a graph in which uh, on the y-axis we have something like spine length or head length. Mm -hmm. And on the x-axis we have an environmental quality. So in this case, uh, nutrient strength from low to middle to high. And on a norm of reaction curve, what you see is the response of a genotype to different environments. So it's not the case when you're looking at a norm of reaction curve that you're tempted to say that there is just a phenotype, a visible character associated with a set of genetic variants. On the contrary, which uh, phenotype you get, which visible character you get, or rather the, 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 the quality of it, depends. It depends on the environment. So a norm of reaction curve, unlike a Punnett square, right, which is what we get out of Mendelian genetics, invites you to see from the start that environment matters and environment makes for variability. Furthermore, when you put multiple curves on the same graph, what you can see 
is that the magnitude genetic combinations make is itself different in different environments. In some environments, mm -hmm. it will make a large difference. In other environments, it makes a small one. So that's that's very important. I think it would not just have made a difference to the kind of research that uh, students of the science of inheritance wanted to do. It would make a difference to the public life of, of that research. I think in agriculture, the accent would have been more on selection than on the purification uh, of breeds with consequences both for the kinds of animals and plants that we that we uh, grow, uh, but also on, on how uh, they're grown on farms, um, but, but also uh, socially. Um, as I suggest, you know, eugenics would have rolled no matter what in the 20th century, but, but mentalism greases the wheels with that emphasis on hereditarianism. By contrast, I think uh, a Weldonian science of inheritance in its public life would have offered intellectual resources for, for pushback. And so uh, how would you say when people nowadays look back in history at Weldon and his work, how would you say they look at him? Uh, I mean, in terms of the role he might have played here since Bateson in the end, I think we could, we could say one. Well, um, on the whole, up until the publication of my book, Weldon hasn't had much of a reputation. Uh, even among historians and philosophers of biology, I've had them say to me, you know, why Weldon? Um, isn't he the guy? Yeah, he's the guy who showed that you could uh, demonstrate the action of natural selection in the wild in the 1890s. And, and that was important. Uh, and wasn't he the one who, in a nitpicking way, pointed out that peas aren't just yellow or green uh, and was committed ideologically to the idea that you shouldn't explain inherited characters in terms of invisible factors, uh, kind of obsession with statistics. Mm -hmm. So so he, he has not, by any means, had a reputation as, as an important uh, biologist, let alone one whose work might have changed the way that we now think about inheritance. But, uh, and, and, and in fairness to, to everybody else, Weldon was one of these intellectuals whose very best work was never published. It's not just the book that he didn't live to complete, but all of the letters. Uh, since since we're, we're here in my office, I can, I can show you some of my research materials behind me of uh, you know, endless photocopies of letters that were just brilliant. Letters mm -hmm. that he would write, especially to his mathematical ally, Carl Pearson, but also to Francis Galton, almost daily, multiple pages, full of data, theorizing, jokes, insights, uh, phenomenal. Um, a phenomenal character and, and, a, and a really um, impressive thinker. And a, part of the privilege for me in writing the book is a chance to introduce this guy to, to the wider community. Someone whose published work is nothing like as exciting as, as the, the unpublished the unpublished work. So my hope is that, um, and this is already, I've, I've been encouraged by the reviews that have appeared so far. Uh, on the whole, the reviewers say, gosh, Weldon was right. Um, we now know, uh, given what we now know, 
um, his vision of how inheritance works is far more in keeping with the vision that we have in the genomic, epigenetic, extended evolutionary age uh, than the Mendelian one. And indeed, the the review in the New Scientist was was uh, uh, characterized the book as arguing for the the need to reset genetics for mm. the for the the post the post genomic age. And and uh, I I really. Uh, I'm really excited about that. That that uh, people are discovering that what we what we think we've only learned in the last 20 years or so about how actually inherited characters are very complex. It's not just you know one gene making one character. It's it's multiple chromosomes involved all over the, the, the and 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 not just chromosomes but but epigenetics, the microbiome, the multiple contexts internally, multiple contexts externally. Uh, this isn't just an insight of the 21st century. Uh, a really thoughtful, well-informed biologist in the early 20th century thought that too. And what makes Weldon, I think, stimulating company for us now is that we, in thinking about where we are, need to try to unthink Mendelism. And that's really hard. By contrast, Weldon didn't have to do that. Uh, and 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 I think that 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 makes him really instructive and surprising. Mm -hmm. So uh, in trying to uh, imagine how Weldon could have been successful, could you tell us about the Weldonian interaction emphasizing course that ran at the University of Leeds back in 2013 and its results? Because I think that's a very interesting thing that you also explore in the book at a certain point. Sure. Uh, so we've been talking about the uh, interests that, that I pursue in the book mm -hmm. in asking not just what happened, but in explaining it. And, you know, in, in my view, by no means original to me, explanations carry counterfactual implications, right? If we say that A caused B, what, what we seem to mean is if not for A, Right, no B, and I, and I, I'm a little unusual, but again, not alone in saying that I think that historical explanations benefit when we follow through in thinking about the counterfactual implications that that come with them. And so, in my own case, asking myself, you know, did this debate really matter? Weren't we bound to have something like the Mendelian gene at the center of our knowledge of inheritance? Uh, well, I, I can't actually go back and develop the Weldonian signs of inheritance that might have been, right? The past is the past, it's gone. Um, but I figured I could imagine what it would be like to develop an introductory curriculum in genetics as if it came out of a more Weldonian past, a past in which Weldon had lived long enough to publish that book and it had gone on to have some kind of a life. Uh, and, and in thinking about what that curriculum would look like, uh, the thought came to, well, maybe you could not just develop this curriculum, right? A curriculum which honors Weldon's view that Mendelian patterns were not the big generalization, but the special case. Right. The big generalization mm -hmm. was about interaction uh, and complexity. 
and variability. Uh, that, that a gene has its effects in contexts, and as the contexts change, the effects change. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you could not just develop the curriculum, but maybe you could teach it. Maybe you could recruit students onto it. And, and then at the end, you could maybe compare those students cognitively to students coming out of a standard start with Mendel mm -hmm. course. Uh, so so that, that thought came uh, around uh, 2011, 2012. And to my amazement, um, we got a grant to actually run the experiment. And so uh, working with a collaborator at Leeds, Jenny Lewis, who, who was a genetics education specialist, we recruited Annie Jameson, who was a developmental biologist turned historian of science, and so beautifully uh, fitted to appreciate Weldon's perspective and how exciting it was, and also just and a wonderful teacher. And so we did it. Uh, we, um, with, with Annie taking the lead, wrote this new curriculum. Uh, we recruited students onto it. Uh, the, the university, it quickly became clear, wouldn't let us use biology students. You know, we weren't allowed to mess with biology students uh, for, for these experimental purposes. So we, we instead recruited humanities students who took it as a kind of enrichment course. Uh, nevertheless, a course of, course of lectures were given in which students started out uh, not with Mendel's peas and then got it all complicated, but instead started out with complication. And you know, one of the achievements, I think, of what we did is to show that you can teach about complexity without itself being complicated. So you can teach about how, for example, uh, the genetic contribution to the health or otherwise of a human heart is just one of a whole complex set of causes, of risk factors, as they're sometimes called, that one wants to take into account in understanding why a heart is the way that it is. And, and those those causes will themselves change over an individual's lifetime. Uh, that's not actually all that hard to, for people to get their heads around. But once they've done that, and uh, they find themselves in a course in which gene-gene-gene-environment interaction is hammered home all the time, not at, it's not a kind of cognitive luxury item that they might meet one day and then forget about after the exam. It's what they remember because it's what is emphasized. Uh, uh, in that kind of a course, what we found when we assessed the students uh, and the control students uh, doing Genetics 101 before and after teaching is that when it came to what in academia is called genetic determinism, uh, which is an ugly term, uh, and I wish I didn't have to use it because it's problematic, but it is what it is. And, and, and it suggests it's the, the and have an exaggerated view a disposition to suppose that heredity is destiny. What we found is that students taking the Genetics 101 course were on average as determinist about genes at the end of teaching as they were at the start. If, if anything, they were a little more so, right? Mm -hmm. So nothing that they had learned in the course of the course had disabused them of the heredity is destiny ideas. By contrast, students coming out of the Weldonian interactionist course, on average, were less determinist about genes at the end of teaching as they were at the start. And at least 
with the teachers of genetics at uh, secondary school and, and universities that I've interacted with, um, they all think that that's what you want students to come away with, right? The more you learn about genetics, the more respect you should have for how complicated the system is, how, how uh, provisional our scientific understanding of it is. And, and, and so the more ready you should be when you see that newspaper headline, when you're given that 23andMe report about genes for X, whatever exciting character X is, the more ready you should be to ask questions, to be skeptical and probing. Uh, that, that should be, I, I think, uh, that, that should count as a win. Uh, and so it's been really exciting to see how the pursuit of a counterfactual question in the history of science, right, which some people are inclined to say, you can't even, you can't ask such a question, let alone answer it, uh, has led to a genuinely new option for the teaching of, of genetics in the, in the 21st century. Right? So, so weirdly, one, it turns out that, that maybe a, a really useful way of resetting genetic knowledge for the 21st century is by going back, going back in time to, to that Bates and Weldon debate, uh, back in time to be in the company of someone in Weldon's case, who was so well informed about the biological sciences of his day, who cared a lot, but as I said before, unlike us, doesn't have to unthink Mendelism. And it's really striking. You'll uh, I've actually, you'll find testimonials from geneticists who see all the problems with beginning with Mendel's peas, the legacy of determinism that it can leave students with, and yet found it literally unthinkable to start with anything other than, than Mendel's peas. Uh, so that's been, a, I think, a really happy outcome from, from this, this history of science project, and one I'm, I'm keen to pursue. And so let me ask you just one last question, and keeping some hope in mind of trying to give some continuity or saving some of the ideas of Weldon's. Um, do you think that a Weldonian approach to genetics connect in any way, connects in any way to the idea, the more recent idea of the extended evolutionary synthesis? I, I really do. Uh, and, and, and there are a few ways into this. Uh, one point that I, that I make in the book is that when we ask ourselves about what happened in the early 20th century with the science of inheritance, we, we tend, I think, overmuch to, to focus on that triple convergence uh, by Hugo de Vries, Carl Korins, and Eric Chermock. On, on Mendel's results and Mendel's explanations in the year 1900 as a kind of signal from history that this is the future, this is where mm -hmm. things are going. And you know, I actually quote someone in the book who says, if it hadn't been three people in 1900, it would have been six people in 1901. That's how irresistible the Mendelian gene concept had become in the early 20th century. And, and, and I don't think that's right. Uh, and, and I think the um, seeming irresistibility of the concept derives in part from selective attention. Uh, and so uh, I was much taken by an observation of the uh, paleontologist Gigi Simpson, 
who pointed out that only a few years before that triple convergence, there was another one that we don't talk about as much on what comes to be called the Baldwin effect. Uh, uh, so in, in 1896, three independent thinkers, uh, one of them James Mark Baldwin, after whom it's named, uh, but also Henry Fairfield Osborne, a, a paleontologist, and Conway Lloyd Morgan, uh, who, who's best remembered as a psychologist, all independently come up with a way of accounting for seemingly Lamarckian inheritance, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, a, a behavior, an adaptive behavior is learned under new circumstances and, and then is, is inherited. Uh, now, uh, by, already by that time in biology, not least thanks to experiments by the German zoologist August Weissmann, it was becoming pretty clear that that probably didn't happen, that, that there wasn't a, a, a literal transmission of the, of the in, uh, acquired character. So, but nevertheless, observationally, something like that did seem to happen. Uh, how to explain it without supposing that inherited, uh, that acquired characters are inherited? And on, on the view that emerges, uh, what you get is is uh, the persistent re-emergence of this adaptive learned behavior, putting a kind of selection premium on organisms who end up getting uh, changes in their germinal constitution so that what has to be learned by previous generations just becomes inherited. So it's a way of, of Darwinianly making sense of what might look like it would push you to accept Lamarckian inheritance. And I think what's instructive about that historically is that it shows that at the end of the 19th century, there's a very creative discussion going on about how to put together heredity, development, environments, and evolution. And as Simpson put it, the Mendelian convergence then pushes the biological discussion in a very different direction. So part of what I'm inviting readers to do in the book is to imagine if the same conversation that precipitated out the Baldwin effect had been allowed to continue. And, and I, I hope that one of the surprises for readers of the book will be to see what Weldon's uh, Darwinian natural selection theorizing looks like, because at the center of it is what we now call phenotypic plasticity. Right, that that idea which is captured by by the normal curve, right. that 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 environments matter, and at least in my own encounters with the extended evolutionary synthesis, it's it it is that vision of Darwinian natural selection which puts phenotypic plasticity uh, at, at the center, uh, and and so I think, or my hope is that that people who who want to go there, who want to get beyond the modern synthesis vision, uh, which in caricature says it's all about gene frequencies uh, and, and, and wants instead to have this much more ambitious picture of inheritance as complexly interactive, uh, to build development in, to build environments in. I, I hope that they'll, they'll find Weldon to be, to be inspiring company, right? Because he shows uh, just how creative uh, Darwinian th reasoning could be 
not just from you know the 1960s, 1970s, but in the 1890s and, and 1900s. So yeah, I, my hope is that the people wanting to extend the synthesis will take courage, as well as uh, some some good ideas from from the Weldon that they'll get to know in the book. Great. So the book is again disputed inheritance, the battle over Mendel and the future of biology. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of this interview. Uh, Dr. Reddick, just before we go, would you like to tell people apart from the book where they can find you and your work on the internet? Sure. Uh, I have a website, which is gregoryradic.com, uh, and, and I do my best to keep it up to date. Uh, and when I'm able to to post my work up in a freely accessible form, uh, I, I do so. Uh, and so uh, we'll, you'll find there pretty much my full oeuvre, uh, but, but also uh, uh, quite a few online talks and, and popular writings uh, as well, including a link to uh, a course that my Leeds colleagues and I uh, put together some years ago, which we called History and Philosophy of Science in 20 Objects. Uh, it, it's based on public lectures that we gave around objects in the University Museum of the History of Science, Technology and Medicine. So there are teaching resources as well as online talks. And, uh, and as I said, to the extent that I'm able to, uh, freely accessible versions of, of my, my published work. Okay, great. I'm also leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. I really loved the book and I it was really fun to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Ricardo. This has been a, a thrill for me. I'm so grateful for your brilliant questions and, and for this this opportunity. Thanks again. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon and PayPal. The links are in the description down below. And also please share, like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perga Larson, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunde, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Erika Lenny, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Nassi, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormier, Samuel Andre, Francis Forti, Agnunes, Fergal Cousin, Hal Herzog, Nun Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, John Nyars, Tantanti, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hummel, Sadus Franz, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Anik Punta, Radana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Stazewski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madsen, Gary G. Hallman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Paul Tolentino, John Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litsky, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Giorgio Stiofanus, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Moray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilley Jr., Old Herringbone, Starry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandon, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Benzliman, 
Jorge Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Paul Crowley, Kate Von Goller, Alexander Hubbard, Liam Dunaway, B.R., Masood Ali Mohammadi, Perpendicular, Jonas Hurtner, Ursula Goodenough, Gregory Hastings and David Pinsoff. A special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Van Egdam, Bernard Hugh, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Giancarlo Montenegro, Alni Cortes, Nick Golden and Rosie, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.